James chapter number 5, verse number 7, James says this, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, uh, lest ye fall into condemnation. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins." Well, throughout this nine-week study, what was supposed to be an eight-week turned into a nine-week study, we have looked at uh, several different themes throughout the book of James. And uh, uh, one of the things I like about our commentator that we've sort of been following his notes, he's really good at alliteration, and uh, preachers love alliteration. Uh, and so the themes that we've looked at, there are seven of them in total. And they go this way. First, we looked at the Christian and his battles. Uh, then we looked at the Christian and his Bible. Then we looked at the Christian and his brethren. Then we looked at the Christian and his beliefs. Then we looked at the Christian and his behavior. And then we looked uh, last week at the Christian and his boasting. Well, to close out this general epistle, we look at the Christian and his burdens. Uh, I'd remind you that in the first six verses of this chapter, uh, James gives a scathing rebuke of uh, men that were prosperous and used their prosperity to oppress Christians. I'd remind you once again that, that, listen, it's not a sin to be rich. If you believe it's a sin to be rich, then give me all your money and I will take that burden from you. Amen? Uh, it's not a sin to be rich. It doesn't make a man wrong to be wealthy. It doesn't man, make a man right to be poor. But rather we do find, and James uh, does warn against this, and Paul does as well, that they that will be rich, uh, they, they do in many ways uh, lay a snare for their soul. And when a person's desire, when their aspiration, when their goal in life is wealth, whatever it takes, then oftentimes the devil will use that. In fact, I'd say all the time the devil will try to use it as a means to ensnare his life and to destroy him, to use him to great damage. So it's not wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong to be rich. But James does recognize that there are certain temptations for the wealthy, certain temptations for the impoverished. And in the first six verses, he, he rebukes those that have allowed and used their wealth uh, to oppress believers and to uh, oppress the faithful in God. Well, in that same thought, 
Uh, beginning in verse number 7 down to verse number 11, he turns his attention away from the oppressing prosperous towards the oppressed poor. In other words, he's been rebuking those that are doing the oppressing. And now he seeks to encourage those that are being oppressed. Uh, those that are suffering affliction really of any kind. And, and that's one of the things that I think is encouraging when you go through these verses. I think the immediate context suggests that he's talking about people that were impoverished. But really it is it is divinely vague enough that this can apply to any of us that are suffering. Any of us that are enduring problems and afflictions and trials and tribulations. You know, the fact is this life is a life of problems, trials. And tribulations. Uh, you know, the Bible's clear that in this life we will have tribulation, and that's not some sort of vague reference concerning uh, the, the great tribulation period, but rather that is just a, a generalized statement for the condition of life and of the human experience, is that we do suffer, we do endure affliction and persecution that is a part of the human experience. So, as he talks about Christians and their burdens, he mentions four different burdens that uh, are upon the Christian. The first, and this is what we'll look at here in a moment, is uh, the burden of poverty. And uh, we might say this, really the burden of persecution and affliction of any type. And then in verse number 12, he talks about the burden of proof. In verses 13 through 18, he talks about the burden for prayer. And then finally, he closes out this general epistle with uh, just two verses in which he says a word about his burden for people. So in verses 7 through 11, we've already read them, but James is talking to uh, early first century Christians, uh, talking to Jews that have believed on the Lord and have suffered persecution. They've uh, no doubt suffered abandonment from their family if their family was Orthodox and, and uh, were faithful Jews. They have experienced persecution from a Roman government that has no interest in protecting their rights. They have no doubt experienced persecution from uh, the Sanhedrin and the religious officials that are trying to stomp out and stamp out this way of Christ. And then evidently they're experiencing persecution just in, in the natural course of life from people that are seeking to take advantage of them. What is God's remedy, remedy to persecution? Well, we could say it in one simple word. Uh, persecution is a way of life, we experience it, and the remedy for it, or at least the answer to it, should be patience. And this is what James calls for. He calls for three types of patience. The first, in verses 7 and 8, is he calls for a simple patience. It says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. The prospect that he sets before his readers is that of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very next thing on God's prophetic calendar, and there might be a lot of, of significant things in the religious realm that transpire before the Lord returns. There are a lot of things that the Bible does not speak directly to, but that may be of great significance in the grand scheme of God's prophetic uh, timetable and plan. I'll give you, for instance, and, and the, the jury's still out on this, uh, but supposedly they managed to breed a, a perfectly pure red heifer uh, the other day in Israel. Will that have bearing on uh, end-time events? Well, if it's true, then of course it will. Because with that red heifer, they can then uh, give, uh, they, they can burn it and take the ashes of the red heifer and make the water of purification and it will enable a way for them to set forward in, in uh, Judea, Judaistic worship once again. So, of course, that's significant. Is it a fulfillment of prophecy? No, it's not. Nowhere in the Bible does it say 
uh, that that would transpire. We can make the assumption that if they were going to reinstitute temple worship, then they'd have to have a red heifer. And so I'm not going to say it bears no significance. And uh, same thing to be said about the nation of Israel uh, calling itself, uh, you know, and not calling itself. Sound like a liberal saying that. Becoming, redeclaring themselves as a state uh, in 1948, reinstituting, reforming themselves as as a uh, state. Was that an answer to prophecy? I don't believe it was. I don't believe the passage that talks about a nation being born in a day. I know we're starting to veer from James, but let me just say this. I'll get back on track. The passage, uh, and I believe it's the book of Zechariah, that talks about a nation being born in the day. It's not talking about uh, a nation, politically speaking, but it's saying that a nation that already exists would be born again, would turn towards the Lord in one day. And, of course, that will transpire whenever Christ returns in power and in glory. I don't believe that Israel uh, becoming a state again in 1948 was a fulfillment of prophecy. Was it significant? Well, of course, of course it was significant. Of course, any time that the people of God, meaning the earthly people, God's elect, the Jewish nation, uh, something like that happens in their national history, that's significant. And there are certain things that paved the way for. Uh, but when we talk about what the next event is on God's timetable of prophecy, the very next thing to happen is not the breeding of a red heifer, it's, it's not the building of a temple. The very next thing that is to happen is the return of Jesus Christ. The rapture of the church. And so, it was also, by the way, in James's day, <laughs> it's interesting that he doesn't say, be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the reinstituting the nation of Israel, or unto the, you know, armistice treaty, or unto the, or whatever it might have been. He says, the next thing that we as Bible believers are looking for is the coming of the Lord. And he gives, first off, a biblical reason for our patience. That at any moment, Christ could return, and our life will be completely changed in a moment. All of the wrongs will be made right. Not to say they'll be made right in that moment, but we will uh, leave our persecution, our affliction, our suffering, our trials. That everything will change and can change and is expected to change at any moment. That's what the word imminent means. And you won't necessarily find that word imminent in your Bible, but you will find the truth of it. Uh, that Christ is at the door. At the door. There's nothing left. He's waiting on the Father to give him the moment, the time, the go-ahead to return for his bride. So there's a biblical reason for our patience. As we suffer persecution, we need to be reminded that as, as Christians, man, we could, be, we could be plucked up out of this mess at any moment. And that we have every reason to place our confidence in the Lord knowing that he will keep his promise. So he gives a biblical reason for patience. Then he gives a biological reason for patience. Uh, he gives an example. He says, Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. You'll find this phrase a lot in your Bible, the early and the latter rain. Uh, in this part of the world, they uh, their seasons are defined by two rainy seasons. Uh, they have a short one that takes place uh, near the end of October. And there will be rain for several days or a week, maybe two weeks that will fall. And this kicks off the planting season because after a long summer of scorching heat, they, they basically don't have any rain. I won't say never, but they basically don't have any rain uh, in, in a lot of places in the Middle East uh, from about May till September. And then late October, they'll get some rain. They'll soften up the ground and enable the farmers to begin to plow. And then they have some rain between them uh, then and, and spring, but not a lot. Uh, it, it's it's fairly sparse. And then about March, early April, uh, that's when the real wet season uh, takes place. And it'll rain just about every day 
and saturate the earth with water. And so for the farmer, they were always looking to and planning their schedule by and setting their proverbial watch by the early and the latter rain. And when the farmer planted, when he labored, when he put the seed in the ground, when he covered it up, when he put whatever fertilizer he might on it and he tended to it and he kept the weeds away, he had done everything he could, all he could do at that point was wait. There was something that had to show up from heaven that was beyond his control. He had done everything he could do. Now it was in God's hands to do what only God could do. And James says that's a lot like us as believers. As we live our life, all we can do is what we can do. We can be faithful to the Lord. We can serve the Lord and live for the Lord. We can, as we endure persecution, we can bear up under it and have a good godly Christian testimony in the midst of it. There are a lot of things that we worry about. In fact, I find this to be the case that for the average human being, uh, worry is, is something that is a substitute for action. Either because they are unwilling to take action, and this is more often than not because they are unable to take action. Um, I heard somebody say one day, I mean, listen, uh, why be content when you can worry, right? <laughs> and that's how a lot of people feel about things in, in life. And, and worry can be a drug. It can be something that draws us away from the actual productive activity of prayer and instead gives us a, a cathartic addiction to the idea that we're doing something by worrying and having anxiety. And trust me, I'm preaching more to me than I am to you tonight because I have to face and battle that just like anybody else does. Uh, but in reality, worry is just a substitute for action. Sometimes because we don't want to take action, but more often than not because we can't. And it's easy when there's nothing that we can do to just sit and worry, to wring our hands. But the farmer, he, he doesn't live that way. He won't get anything done, in fact. In fact, there's certain things he can only do while he waits. And so he does everything he can as far as the planting, and then it's in God's hands. And we too, as we face troubles and trials and persecutions, Instead of, instead of buying to ourselves trouble and worry and anxiety and fear, we ought to do what we can do and then step back and say, Lord, the rest of it's in your hands. I've, I've done what I can and just wait for that early and that latter rain. And he gives us a promise in light of this, verse 8. Uh, the first thing that he says to us, he commands us to be patient in light of this. And then he says, not only are we to be still, but we're to be strong. He says, establish your hearts. What does it mean to establish your hearts? It means to settle your hearts. Uh, when we talk about something that's established, we're talking about something that is fixed to a certain point or to a certain condition. Uh, it is placed in a certain place. And our hearts are to be the same way. We are to look at it, and this is just sort of practical advice to you, but when you're faced with problems and faced with things that worry you, that burden you, uh, one of the things I like to do sometimes is even with pen and paper, sit down and write out what I can actually do about what I'm worrying about. Uh, and oftentimes there will be things I can do. And what that does is allows me to visualize on paper what my next steps are and not be paralyzed by fear or worry. But more often than not, there are times that that page just stays blank because there's nothing I can do about it. And so at that point, all I can do is fix my heart on the Lord. Say, Lord, I've prayed, I've asked you to intervene. I'm going to keep praying, but I'm going to commit this into your care, and I'm going to trust you with it. Simple patience is the order of the day when you're experiencing trouble. But then he talks about a sufficient patience, verse number 9. He says this, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. And he does something, he, he condemns something, he warns us against something, 
that we all are guilty of. The first thing is he says, beware of complaining. You know, sometimes that is the outward expression of our inward worry. And sometimes when we feel like we can't do anything about it, we just gripe about it. I know sometimes it feels good to gripe, and you do too. Don't act all spiritual. Sometimes it just feels good to complain. Amen? But the fact is, complaining never fixed anything. Not a thing. There's never been anything in your life, any problem you face, that complaining about it contributed to the solving of that problem. Now, there is a general complaining that we do sometimes. We call it venting, you know, venting. We're just letting off steam. We're just complaining. We're just griping. But we need to be cautious that we do not allow that tendency to do that to be directed towards other people. Because sometimes we can take something that is a problem that is not within the realm of our responsibility. We can't solve it. We can't change it. And then we'll make someone else bear the brunt of our frustration by pouring out on them our contempt over the problem. We'll make them bear what not only doesn't belong to them, but doesn't even belong to us. Listen, if a problem is out of your hands, it belongs to God, not to you. And how dare we take that and use it to turn around and beat somebody else over the head with? But sometimes we have a tendency to do that. That term grudge, by the way, it's used several times in the New Testament. Uh, whenever Christ uh, healed the man that uh, was deaf and dumb, and uh, he, he took his fingers and put them in the man's ear, and uh, he, the Bible says he sighed, and he said, Ephrathah, which is, means be open. He looked towards heaven and he sighed because of the unbelief of those that were around him. There's a few other places where it's mentioned. It's the same word that's used whenever Paul talks about the whole of creation groaneth and travaileth together until now. And it has the idea of just groaning, griping, because you're frustrated. Well, listen, we're all guilty of it. It's not. I would say this, it's not wrong to grudge, but we shouldn't grudge one against another. If you need to be frustrated, if you need to be discouraged, it's only human to do so, but don't take that out on other people because all you're going to do is discourage them. All you're going to do is bring them to where you're at instead of them lifting you up. Then notice, not only are we to beware of complaining, but we're to beware of condemnation. Here's why this is so important. He says, lest ye be condemned. In other words, we can take something that was not our problem and create a problem for ourselves by getting our heart in a wrong condition with God and mistreating other believers. We can take something that should have been outside of our jurisdiction and create in it a stumbling block that causes us to fall into condemnation. The reason he says this is so important in the next phrase, he says, behold, the judge standeth before the door. This is in direct correlation to what he said back in verse number 7 and verse number 8. Verse 8, he says, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Then he turns around and he says, the judge standeth at the door. I wonder this simple question, I won't dwell on this because I'm not really here to preach, I'm here to teach, but I wonder how many of us, if we treat people the same way, if we thought Jesus was coming back tomorrow, would we want to stand accountable for the way we've treated people? If we had to stand before the judgment seat of Christ tomorrow, well, the fact is we could stand there today. And we need to have a soberness of heart and mind in recognizing that truth. So we see a call for simple patience and sufficient patience, but then we see a call for sublime patience. And he gives two examples of, of groups of people and, and individuals that exercised patience. And we see what the fruit of it is. Look at verse number 10. He says, Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and patience. 
He mentions, first off, the Old Testament prophets. Now, this can range really all the way back from, I think we can probably safely say that Enoch was uh, one of the first, at least, if not the first, one of the first prophets. The book of Jude reveals to us that Enoch, who was the eighth from Adam, that, or the seventh from Adam, that he was a prophet. Uh, and it goes all the way down to John the Baptist and even the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the prophets in Old Testament times, uh, they, their calling was to preach often unpleasant and unrealized messages to a hostile group of people. Very, very few of the prophets <coughs> were ever appreciated or ever received well in their lifetime. Uh, in fact, the only two prophets that really saw all of their prophecies come true before their very eyes, one of them was Jonah, <laughs> and he was mad about it. <laughs> And the other was Nahum, and he, he too was prophesying concerning Assyria, just like Jonah was. Uh, but the Old Testament prophets, almost without fail, the messages that they were given, the prophecies that they declared, were dealing with things that there might have been an immediate realization, but then a prophetic realization would be way distant throughout the future. There's many of the Old Testament prophets that never saw the fulfillment of the things that they said would transpire, would come to pass. And like Jeremiah, often they were preaching to people that hated them, that imprisoned them, that despised what they were saying. You know, there was a time when we would have thought that would be hard to imagine. But just look at society today. I mean, there, there we use this term triggered, right? And, you know, what do we mean when we say someone's been triggered? We mean that we have, we have confronted them with a truth that is so unpalatable to them that they have literally just lost their bearings and their composure. And you can see this all the time today. You can see where uh, conservative commentators go onto college campuses and just list a state of facts, and, and or a page of facts, just a list of facts. And people out in the audience will, will literally be gnashing their teeth and, and, and wringing their hands and crying out to the heavens because they are so disturbed by what's being told them because it's they've never heard truth before. And uh, this was the experience of Old Testament prophets. You think about Jeremiah prophesying to Judah. Uh, while the Assyrians are marching closer, or I'm sorry, the Babylonians are marching closer and closer and closer to the walls of Jerusalem, and you've got false prophets saying, hey, God's going to take care of us, we're all right, God has spoken peace to us. And then here's Jeremiah, a true prophet of God, and his job is to tell the people, no, you're not going to be okay, they are going to overrun you, they're going to kill a lot of you, and if you want any of you to be spared, then you just need to take the chastening of the Lord and not fight against it. I don't know about you, but that's not a very popular message, sounds like to me. I can't imagine that went real well in the royal circles in Judah during Jeremiah's day. Uh, they had very, very unpleasant, unpleasant ministries, uh, unpleasant tasks. It took people of courage and conviction uh, to do this. And the messages that they preached, often they never saw the realization of. And they just had to trust God that what God said would come true. And that's what they did. They stood and suffered. Many of them lost their own lives in standing for a truth that they never even got to see realized. But they had the confidence and conviction that God would keep His promise. If we need an example of how we are to suffer patiently, we can look to them. Oftentimes their only meat was God's Word. Oftentimes the only drink they had was the promise of God. But they lived off of it, and they trusted the Lord that what he said would come true. We see their exhortations and their example. And then look at verse number 11. A patriarch is mentioned. He says this, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Now, he's getting ready to say some things about Job. But I want you to notice, first off, in the midst of these two examples, 
James gives us a point to ponder. And that is that when the smoke settles, when it's all said and done, the people that we admire are not the people that gave up. It's the people that stood strong. Think throughout human history at the people that are the heroes and are the idols of mankind throughout human history. You won't find a quitter in any of them. And the same thing is true today. Uh, no man admires a quitter. It's those that stand strong. And it's true in the spiritual realm as well. You think about the people that we admire throughout the Old Testament. You know, I mean, you, you think about Abraham, a man that didn't quit. Even after, I mean, it took years and years and years to see the promise of God realized in his life. And some of the promises God gave him, he never did see realized in his life. When we talk about Moses spent uh, 40 years on the backside of the desert and just had to trust God that God had a plan for his life, but he endured. And because of that, we admire him. We count them happy which endure. When it's all said and done, we all recognize that it's right to be patient with God and to not give up and to not give out and to serve God even when it's not easy. But then when it's us in the hot seat, it becomes a totally different prospect. So he gives us a a point to ponder, and then he gives us a person to ponder. He says, let me give you an example of that. You have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. I'll go ahead and admit to you, there is as much about the book of Job that I don't understand as there is that I do understand. Uh, I understand the basic exposition of the book. I mean, I understand who's talking, when they're talking, what they mean when they say what they're saying. But in understanding the, the spiritual mysteries concerning what God was doing in Job's life, but more importantly than that, the spiritual development of Job throughout this process. I'll tell you what I really struggle with is in reading the book of Job, it says that in all this, Job sinned not. In all this, he kept his faith throughout the whole thing. And when you look through the book of Job, he doesn't seem like he kept his faith. He doesn't seem like he kept a good spirit. He doesn't seem like he kept a good attitude. Now, this is something that marvels me, but it's also something that encourages me. Because there's a lot of times when I look like Job did, especially about in the middle of the book of Job, when he's wishing that he is dying and complaining about his situation, everything. But the overall story of the book of Job is one I think most of us are familiar with. How that uh, Satan one day appears before God and uh, talks about how he's having his will and his way throughout the world. And God points to Job as an example of the fact that there are some folks that love the Lord and that are serving God, that are standing in a wicked day. And uh, Satan says, well, the only reason he's doing that is because you're blessing him, because you're good to him. And God says, I'll accept that challenge. Uh, God had more confidence in Job than Job even had in himself. And so God permits Satan to touch Job's life. And you know the story, Job loses his children, he loses his wealth, he loses his health. I'm not 100% convinced he lost his relationship with his wife. I think we really give Job's wife a hard time. Uh, but there's no question that something about the dynamic of their relationship did change. Uh, anytime, uh, husbands, that you're ready to call your wife a foolish woman, uh, things probably are not going well. Just word of wisdom, uh, marital counsel. So evidently, I, you know, I, I'm not saying I, I don't give her as hard a time as a lot of preachers do. I think she's genuine, by the way. When she says, just curse God and die, I don't think she was... I don't think that was something she was saying against the Lord. I think her and Job both knew that if he had done that, he would have died. Because the whole reason that he was suffering was that he might be a testimony and a witness uh, to a lost and dying world of God's faithfulness to those that 
trust him. And so, you know, I think she meant it when she said that. And you really think about the amazing strength it took to say that. They just buried ten kids. Uh, They had lost all of their wealth. And she's saying, Job, why don't you just go ahead and die? I'll live with this. I'll clean this up. I'll bear this. You just go ahead and die and let your suffering be at an end. So, listen, I'm not as hard on Job's life as a lot of people are. But there's no question that something changed in the dynamic of their of their marriage. They weren't on the same page, at least, in that situation, in that circumstance. And for uh, 30-something chapters, Job has to listen to his friends solve all the world's problems and tell him how wrong he is and tell him why everything's happening. And then God shows up. And when God shows up, he shuts everybody up. And uh, it, God never, by the way, in all those chapters in the book of Job, God never explains to Job why he went through what he went through. Never once. You and I have something that Job never had. And that is the first two chapters of the book of Job. Uh, We get to read about the scene in heaven. And we have no reason to believe Job ever knew any of those things. Now, did he? Well, maybe. But we have no scriptural authority to say that he did. So I think we ought to just treat it as though he didn't. And Job just had to trust God in the midst of that suffering. And in the midst of his affliction. And by the end of the book of Job, the Bible says that uh, Job wound up. He died a healthy, happy, prosperous man. And that God had given him twice as much as what he had had initially. God gave him double of everything except kids. And really God gave him double kids. And this is why, and by the way, I'm also one of those people that believe Job's kids probably knew the Lord. I don't believe they were living right necessarily, but I believe they knew the Lord. Because I think that's the reason that God only gave him a one-for-one one, uh, you know, repayment, quote-unquote, for his kids. is because he hadn't lost those first ten kids. I believe they were with the Lord in paradise. So uh, Job is an example of someone that trusts the Lord in the midst of suffering. But it's not even really Job, I I don't think, that James is pointing to, because notice what he says at the end of verse 11. What have we seen? It's not that we've seen that Job is faithful, although Job was faithful. What we've learned from the book of Job is the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Literally, the word pitiful means full of pity. Imagine that. I didn't even need a Greek degree to understand that. Uh, full of pity. Uh, it, it means much heart. In other words, God wasn't sitting up in heaven looking down in an unfeeling, cold way, callous way at Job's suffering. God felt everything that Job felt. Uh, this should be no surprise to us. The Bible says that we have a high priest that's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. I've shared this with you before, but I think it's a good place to remind you of this illustration. I heard a preacher talking one time said that he was in a very high dollar music store. And they, in that music store, they had harps. And he was talking to the fellow that owned the music store, and the music uh, store owner said to him, said, watch this. And he went over, and there were two harps that were sitting at opposite ends of the store. And he plucked a string on one of the harps. And when he did, the string on the other harp at the other end of the store began to vibrate. And he said, these two harps are in such sync and tune. They are so much on the same frequency that if you pluck a string here... Just the sound waves will move the string over there. And my preacher friend said, you know, that's a lot the way that the Lord is with us. What plucks our heart string down here plucks his heart string up there. And he feels and experiences what we go through. Uh, The testimony of the book of Job is not about the faithfulness of Job, but about the feeling of God, that he is pitiful and full of tender mercy towards his people. So we see the burden of poverty in these verses, and really we might say the burden of persecution. In verse number 12, James sort of switches gears, and he gives just one verse on this thought, the burden of proof. 
And I think we need to give a little context to it as we read it. He says, but above all things. So he's still talking the same vein. He's still talking to people that are experiencing trouble. He's still talking to people that are being persecuted. And he's giving them counsel. Don't give out on the Lord. Serve the Lord. Be patient. Don't get frustrated with each other. Just trust God in the midst of your problems. He says, but above all, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. I thought good and hard about what this means. I think there are there, there's a basic idea here, and then I think maybe there's a couple different ways that James may have had in mind as he said this. I think the basic idea is this. Look to the future, but live in the present. When you swear something, what you're doing is you're, you're writing a check that you can use in the present, but it's rooted in the future. For instance, if someone say, I swear to you that I will do this or do that or whatever it might be. What they're doing is they're saying, if you will allow me this favor or this liberty now, then I promise you that later on I will repay it by doing this or doing that. That's what a swear, that's what an oath is for in this context, in this sense. It's, it's, it's a promise. And I think that there's a couple examples that we might think of. And I don't know what James had in mind, particularly when he pinned this down. But I think both of these are an application for. One of them is the idea of saying, I swear that I will stay true. Promising God that you will stay true. I think another example, and a lot of people do this, saying to God, I swear that if God will do this, if he will deliver me, if he will uh, fix this problem, if he will repay this debt, if he will, whatever it might be, insert whatever your need is there, I promise God that if you'll do this, then I will do such and such. I think those are two clear, ready examples of where people swear things as it relates to their spiritual walk with the Lord, either saying, God, you know, I, I promise to you that if you'll do this, then I'll do this, or just merely saying, Lord, I commit to you, I promise to you that I'll stay true. Now, is it wrong to do that? No. Look at what he says in juxtaposition. He mentions what we are to avoid, which is swearing. And then he says what we are to avow. He says, instead of that, let your yea be yea and your nay, nay. Now, what does that mean when he says that? Well, when the Bible, and there's several occasions in which Christ said the same thing to his disciples, when, when they say, let your yeas be yea and your nays be nay, and Paul said the same thing, I believe, to the church at Corinth, what it means is let your yes mean yes, and let your no mean no. In other words, don't be a man of your prospective promise. Be a man of your present word. Don't promise it, just do it. Just do it. And I think that in the greater context of people suffering affliction, there's a tendency to say, well, one day when things are easier, I'll do this. Or if God will get me out of this, then I commit this. James says, don't do that. Don't make a bunch of promises that you don't know if you'll be able to keep. Just commit your present life, your present moment. That's what he just told him in chapter 4. Go to now, ye that say today or tomorrow. He's saying, instead of doing that, just commit right now to the Lord. And let your word be your bond as it relates to God. Don't make God a bunch of promises. Just do what you know to do and live sincerely, genuinely before God. He says this is the reason for it because you might fall into condemnation. You know, here's the reality. There's all kinds of things. And you know this to be true. I see it every single year. Listen, there's something about this time of the year. Uh, we've had just two deaths in our church in the past week. And a whole slate of surgeries coming up. And there's just something about time change 
dark, cold weather. I don't know what it is, but during this time, there's just a lot of heartache, a lot of suffering. A lot of people go home to be with the Lord, and a lot of people are sick, and a lot of people, uh, I guess because they want to get that surgery in before their deductible rolls over, they have surgeries right now too, but there's just a lot of things like that. And I've heard so many people say this, well, preacher, I promise you when I get out of here, I'm going to come see you at church. Let me tell you something, I could count on one hand after a, a firecracker accident. How many times that people have actually kept their word about that? And I'm not, I, listen, I'm not a cynic. I understand even in that moment. And I'm never, I'm never cruel. I always, well, I hope we get to see you. I'd love to get to see you. I hope you do. But the fact is, it's easy to make promises when you're in the midst of persecution. But it's a whole other thing to make good on those promises when you're in a place of prosperity or when you're in a place of ease. James says, don't get, don't get lured into that. Making God a bunch of promises in the midst of your trouble. Don't get lured into making a bunch of commitments that if anything ever gets better, you'll this or that. No, because very simply, you've heard this phrase, talk is cheap. And that's true in the spiritual realm too. Talk is cheap. God knows your heart. Instead, just commit the present moment to the Lord and live for Him day by day. If you can live for God each day of your life, you know what you'll do? You'll live for God with your whole life. So instead of worrying about your whole life or the next ten years or the next five years or the next month even, just commit today to the Lord. When you wake up tomorrow, do the same thing. Let your yea be yea, let your nays be nay. So he mentions the burden of proof, and then he talks about the burden for prayer. He says in verses 13 and 14, the beginning of verse 14, let's read this uh, together. It says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. So the hypothesis is this. He mentions first off the man who is overwhelmed. He says he ought to speak to the Lord. Let him pray. If you're in the midst of trouble and affliction, pray. Talk to the Lord. Then he talks about the man who is overjoyed. He says, let him sing psalms. Let him sing to the Lord. And then he mentions the man who is overcome. Is any among you, is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. Now, I'm going to tell you uh, what the commentator believes about this, and then I'm going to tell you that I don't know if I wholeheartedly agree with the commentator. All right? Uh, Because he gives an exposition, and I understand where he's coming from. I think there's some truth to what he's saying, but I think he's very limited in his scope of of what he's making application with in this verse. Because the very next phrase is the Bible says, Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. The Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So he mentions the hypothesis of prayer. Then he mentions the healing of prayer. Uh, our church does practice anointing people with oil. Uh, I, in fact, we did so Sunday night after the evening service. We try not to make a big spectacle of it. I don't think it needs to be made a spectacle, but uh, we do it in obedience to Scripture. Uh, the commentator claims, and I can see where he's coming from, he claims that these are very, very distinct, specific circumstances. And he claims that what James is picturing here is a person that is experiencing sickness under the chastening of God and has been uh, put under church discipline and has been cast out of the local body under church discipline because of sin. And saying that for that person, what they need to do is call for the elders of the church, thereby repenting, asking for uh, for entrance back into the local body, and asking the uh, the uh, elders to come and to anoint him with oil and pray over him. And then it says, 
If he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him, saying if he sought forgiveness of the Lord and sought forgiveness of the church body, then they'll forgive him and he'll be restored. And part of what the commentator's uh, exposition of this hinges on is the affirmative statements that are made here, where it says the prayer of faith shall save the sick. It doesn't say it might save the sick. It says it shall save the sick. And it says the Lord shall raise him up, not the Lord might raise him up. It says, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him, not they might be forgiven him. And the, the commentator claims that these affirmative statements dispel the idea of praying over people that are sick, not because of punishment or chastening from God. But the only way we can guarantee that there will be healing, thereby guaranteeing that the, the words that James pinned down are always 100% all the time true in every situation, is if they only apply to people that are under church discipline that are sick because they are being chastened of God. Now, let me pause and say this. I think that the scenario the commentator lays out is absolutely correct and 100% true and is something that if it doesn't happen, it probably should happen more in churches. The exercising of church discipline, uh, that being reinforced by the chastening of God in people's lives, that God through his loving kindness might draw people back into fellowship with him. But I I stopped short from agreeing 100% with what he's saying in that I don't believe that this exclusively applies to people in that circumstance. Uh, I don't believe that simply because the Bible says the prayer of faith shall save the sick, that we then have to corner God into the corner and say, so God, you have to do this every single time, or we've somehow misinterpreted the text. Uh, I've seen plenty of times that we've prayed over people, uh, that we've anointed them with oil. Oil has no capacity to heal a person. Uh, it doesn't in this situation. It wasn't in any situation. But it is symbolic of something. Uh, oil, of course, does have medicinal properties and qualities, but it doesn't say let him call for the physician. It says let him call for the elder. So we're talking about a spiritual thing here when it says oil. It's not talking about oil being used in a medicinal sense. So I believe the oil, the anointing oil that's spoken of here is symbolic in nature. And I believe it symbolizes the Spirit of God. I believe the reason for that is because if there is divine healing ministered in a person's body, it's it's not necessarily ministered by the Father because the Father's in heaven. It's not necessarily ministered by the Son because the Son's seated at the right hand of the Father. But I do believe it's ministered by the Spirit of God in the body of that person because the Spirit of God is the one that indwells them. Uh, we understand, you understand, I believe, I, and, and I know I do, that it is not always God's will to heal. And this is another issue that I have with this is because John would later on talk about people that were under church discipline. And he would say, if you see a brother sin a sin unto death, do not pray for that man because that man can't be healed. Well, if we were trying to constrain this application to only be describing people that are under church discipline, I have trouble seeing how you could reconcile those two things. Because James says if a person is under church discipline, pray for it. John says, if a person is under church discipline and they're refusing to get something right, don't pray for that person. There's no point in praying for them. They're sending a sin unto death. So, listen, good men with good will and, 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 and with good, you know, good hermeneutics could debate all day long about it. But I'll tell you that my belief is that James is setting forth what is to be a practice, not just in his day. We're not talking about healing in the apostolic sense of what the apostles did as a sign gift for the nation of Israel. But we're talking about something that's ministered in the local church. Uh, elsewise, God wouldn't have preserved it for us today as a command. So I believe we're talking about uh, if a person is sick, they are to call for the elders of the church themselves. Why? Because my faith can't do anything in your life. Your faith can't. You have to be the one that's, that's believing that God's word is true and that God will perform this in your life. Now, again, that's not a guarantee that God's going to heal you because it's not always God's will to heal. 
But I've seen God heal far too many times to believe it's never God's will. She said, well, preacher, what do we do with all that? Well, I think if you're sick and if you have liberty from the Lord to, I think it's perfectly appropriate to go to your pastor and say, hey, listen, would, would some of the men of the church be willing just to have a word of prayer with me? I'd advise you to do this. Uh, just my opinion. I think it's always good to do that in as discreet a way as possible. Uh, not necessarily because it's something we ought to be ashamed of, because it's not. It's a scriptural tenant. We shouldn't be ashamed of it, but because I think we need to ensure that we're doing it not out of a show of the flesh, but we're doing it out of obedience to the Lord. I think it's good to be discreet about it. I think it's good to grab people that love the Lord and that know the Lord and that have faith and that will pray. But if that person does not trust the Lord in this matter, if they don't have faith about it, then there's no reason to believe that God would work in their life. And by the way, we see this to be true all the way through the New Testament, uh, that even when the Lord saw their faith in Matthew or in Mark chapter number 2 with the people that came and brought the uh, man that was paralytic, that man had to believe. It wasn't enough for the people around him to believe. That person had to believe in order for the Lord to raise him up. So uh, you take that, you do with it whatever you want to do with it. So uh, I want you to notice, <laughs> we'll move on from that because we're running a little late on time anyway. Look down to verse number 16. There's a postscript given concerning prayer. James says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So in this context of praying over a person that is sick and them praying, uh, there's a requirement given, and that is that we confess our faults. It does not say to confess our sins. There's a difference. It says confess our faults. Now, that's not to say that a fault can't be a sin. It's not to say that a sin is not a fault. But it is to say that the distinction between the two is important because we're not talking about uh, sort of a, a hierarchical priesthood uh, uh, like the Roman Catholics have where you go into a little cubicle and tell a priest all the things that you've done wrong so he can intercede to God for you. I think when it says confess your faults, it's talking about twofold. I think one, it's talking about people that you have done wrong to. You ought to confess to them that you've done wrong to them. But then I think, too, it's also saying that inasmuch as we have flaws and failings and fallings and faults, we ought to be honest with each other about those things because a person can't pray for it if you won't tell them about it. They can't pray for it if you won't tell them about it. So we have to be honest about those things, the responses that we are to pray. And then the reason is this, because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The word for effectual and fervent there means energetic. That prayer has the capacity, you know, energy is, uh, is how do we say that? Particles in movement, in motion, I guess would be the way to say it. Uh, energy is defined by movement. It's not defined by inactivity, it's defined by activity. And prayer by its very nature is something that moves things. It avails much. And he gives us an example for this. Uh, we see in this passage the uh, hypothesis and the healing, and then he mentions the hero. In verse number uh, 17, I didn't pick that word, that's what the commentator picked. But <laughs> He says, Elias, meaning Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Let me say a word first about Elijah and his passions. He says he's a man of like passions as we are. Now, this same phrase is used by Paul at Lystra. You remember when uh, the pagan worshippers at Lystra wanted to take him and Barnabas and uh, and worship them. They thought they were Jupiter and Mercurius. They thought they were Roman gods. And uh, Paul, he, he, he stops the show. He says, no, 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 we're not going to get that started. He says, listen, we're men of like passions like as ye are. 
What he's saying is we're flesh and bone just like you. Elijah, by the way, is a fit person to use as an example because Elijah was part of the group that we call uh, miracle-working prophets. There were uh, prophets that were message-preaching prophets and then miracle-working prophets. Uh, Elijah had messages that God commissioned him to deliver, but not in the same way that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel did, entire books of the Bible, 40, 50 chapters, some of them, uh, of, of content and message that God gave to them to present. And by the way, we have no reason to believe that most of those message uh, prophets, uh, that they ever performed any miracles. But men like Elijah and Elisha were miracle-working prophets. So Elijah was a man acquainted with miracles. He was acquainted with the supernatural. And yet, James goes out of his way to point out that at the end of the day, he was flesh and bone just like you and I. So how was it that God performed these miracles in his life? Well, uh, we see Elijah and his prayers. It was through prayer these things were accomplished. Uh, His first prayer answered in verse number 17 at the end. Uh, The Bible says that he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. This was a prayer of judgment. By the way, these two prayers are denoted by two very similar phrases. When uh, his first prayer was given, God answered and told Elijah to go hide himself. Uh, When the second prayer, it was time to pray it, God commanded him to go show himself to Ahab. So his first prayer was that it might not rain. His second prayer was that it would rain. First prayer was a prayer of judgment. The second was a prayer of mercy. By the way, I do believe, I'll admit to you, I'll be scripturally honest enough to admit to you that I believe that this passage does strengthen the hypothesis of the commentator concerning verses 14 and 15 and 16. Because what you have in Elijah's day is Elijah praying and the judgment of God being poured out, and then praying and the judgment of God being removed. So if the sickness referenced in those verses back there were to be due to the chastening of God, then it, it, it would sort it would g and ha it, it would fit with what James is saying in verses 17 and 18 because these prayers had to do with the judgment of God. But I think the greater truth James is pointing to is simply this: that Elijah was a man just like me and you. Now, was he a courageous man, a man of conviction, a man of steel resolve, and, and of, of a backbone of iron? Of course he was. He was a prophet of God. But it wasn't any of those things that made Elijah who he was or allowed Elijah to do what he did. It was his prayer life. He was a man that walked with God. When he walked into the throne room of Ahab, he made an amazing statement. He said, as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand. Now, here he is standing in the throne room of a man that can take his head off his shoulders. But he says to Ahab, it's not your throne room I'm standing in. It's God's throne room that I'm standing in. And that was the secret to Elijah's boldness, was he was a man of constant prayer. Did he make mistakes? Absolutely. You go through his life and you see valleys, you see mountaintops, you see victory, you see depression, discouragement. But at the end of the day, he wielded amazing, remarkable power with God because he prayed. He sought God in prayer. So we see a burden for prayer. And then finally, and I'll close with these two verses, we see a burden for people. James closes, verses 19 and 20. Uh, First off, he mentions the careless backslider. He says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. It's interesting, we see that pastor's heart shining through uh, with James once again. And uh, his desire is this, that if a person be backslidden, uh, that they would be restored. Not that they'd be cast away, but that they would be restored. This again, I'll be honest enough to admit, even that gives force maybe to the commentator's interpretation of verses 14 through 16. But he says, when a person is not right with God, the desire is not that we shoot our wounded, 
but rather that we see them restored. Backsliddenness, by the way, there will be some people that say backsliddenness is not a New Testament idea. And I will admit you won't find the word backsliding in the New Testament. Uh, but backsliding is a, a part of the human depraved condition, the sin-fallen condition. We all have a tendency to slip away from the Lord. It can happen quicker than we even realize. Uh, I, I, there was a little illustration given in one of the books I thought was interesting. It says that a famous violinist was asked once how long he practiced. And he said that he practiced 10 or 12 hours a day. And the person that was interviewing him said, what would happen if you slacked off practicing, if you skipped a day or two? And he answered this. I thought this was really good. He said, after one day, I would know it. He said, after two days, the conductor would know it. After three days, the orchestra would know it. He said, after that, everybody would know it. Backsliddenness always begins with a first initial step of backing away in our walk with God. And after one day, it might not be anybody knows it, but you and God. But if you continue in that, it won't be long, and everybody will be able to see it. So he mentions the careless backslider, and then he mentions the concerned believer. And he's sort of hidden in these verses, but he says, If any of you do err from the truth, and notice this word, and one, convert him. One. That term one is representative of somebody that loved that person enough to go and in kindness and in spiritual tact confront them and encourage them to get right with the Lord. We need the wisdom of God to be able to do that effectively and to be able to do it kindly. But we do need, when a person is wrong with the Lord, especially if God's given us a special place in their life, we do need to be willing to go to them and say, hey, listen, I've been noticing that you've been slipping. I've been praying for you. I love you. I want to see you get right. You know, you used to be at church three times a week. Now I'm seeing you twice a week. Now I'm seeing you once a week. You know, you used to be faithful in this ministry or that. Now you're not there very often. And I'm just, I'm noticing you slipping. I love you. I don't want to see you get yourself in a bind. Uh, let's try to do our best for the Lord. He mentions the concerned believer and then the consequent benediction. In light of that, he says this, and this closes out our study on the book of James. Let him know. And by the way, he's not talking about the backslidden person, but he's talking about the benevolent person that went to the backslider. Let that person know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. In other words, because they were willing to care, they could rescue that person's life from destruction. Now, I'm not going to parse words with you about whether he's talking about a lost person when he uses the term sinner. I, I sort of believe he's not. I think he's talking about a saved person, but a person that's living in sin. Uh, you might disagree with that, and that's fine, but... Uh, I think the overall point of what James is saying is he's saying, remind that person that it's a worthwhile thing to not give up on people, but to continue to love them, to continue to pray for them, and continue to pursue them in grace. Because to do so might very likely make a difference in their life, their children's, their grandchildren's, and generations to come.